Sunday mornings, and I've been going through Paul's epistle to the Galatians. So um, if you'll go ahead and open with me, we are finishing up chapter 2 today. We're finishing out chapter 2 of Galatians, just to highlight where we've left off. We've learned so far in this epistle, in this last portion of it, that the centrality of the gospel is key in this epistle and is key for Paul's exhortation to the Galatians here. The centrality of the gospel, and that, that is to say that fellowship between Christians can only be had around the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is not present, there is no fellowship to be had. We, uh, he has highlighted here the exclusivity of the gospel. That is to say that there is only one gospel, and it is a defined particular message with particular elements. And re removal of those elements re results in the loss or the distortion of the gospel. If we look at Galatians chapter 1, Verse 6, Paul tells the Galatians, he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul is saying there that to add any other element or to subtract any other element from the gospel would be to pervert the gospel of Christ. And he goes on to say that, uh, that the, or he says before that, that uh, another gospel is really no gospel at all. So if we don't have the key elements of the gospel, we don't have the gospel. And thirdly, the severity with which the gospel is to be guarded. We talked about this the last time I spoke, which was two or three weeks ago now. Uh, we talked about uh, Paul not giving in to the Judaizers for a minute that the truth of the gospel might continue with those churches that Paul had established in Galatia. They, we are to guard this singular message and refute those who contradict. Paul exhorts Timothy in his epistle to uh, the young pastor in Ephesus, Timothy. He says that elders should be able to proclaim the gospel, be apt to teach the gospel, and have enough wisdom to refute those who contradict. The, the protection of this singular gospel is absolutely crucial to the health and the vitality of the Christian church. So I have titled this sermon today, because of where we are going, Gospel Essentials. So if you're taking notes, the title for this message is Gospel Essentials. So I want to go ahead and read our text and then pray and ask God 
to bless the message and those who hear it. We will be starting in chapter 2, verse 15. This is the word of the living and the true God. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For through the law I am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith, faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. The great God of heaven, Lord, you who sat enthroned above the circles of the earth, keeping watch over your creation and over your children, Father, we pray today that as your word is opened up and expounded, we pray that you would make it effectual to hearts and to salvation and to the edification of thy saints in every place. Father, as far and wide as this message goes today, I pray that your church would be encouraged and that those who know you not would be exhorted to turn to the only living and the true God for life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would protect today my lips from error. Lord, that if I speak anything contradictory to your word, that you would allow it to pass over the ears of the hearer. Father God, I pray today that your truth would be proclaimed, and it would be proclaimed boldly, and it would be received for what it is, the very word of God. I ask your benediction on this service. And Lord, we ask that you would go with us today as we endeavor to worship you in spirit and truth. Ask all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I titled this Gospel Essentials. And before we move any further, I want to define these terms. If we're going to use terms, it's helpful to define them. And most people are familiar with these two definitions, but I want to cover them just for the purpose of your note-taking and understanding why I have deemed these truths that we're going to unpack from the Scripture here today as essential to the gospel. So the first definition would be gospel. Gospel is the good news, specifically the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior who was born of God, born under the law, born of a woman who came into this earth to redeem fallen humanity. This, it's the good news. In the Greek, this is 
euangelio, the message of the comprehensive redemptive work of Christ, atoning death, burial, resurrection of the third day according to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 4 uh, Paul unpacks that we believe that Christ was crucified buried and resurrected and all of this according to the scriptures I'm not going to turn there just for the sake of time but he, he goes through this step by step and he says you know we believe that Christ was crucified according to the scripture that he was buried and raised the third day for our justification according to the scriptures. And these things are absolutely necessary to the gospel. If your gospel doesn't include a um, atoning sacrifice, and I would say specifically a substitutionary atoning sacrifice, then you don't have the proper contents of the gospel. So we must protect these elements of the gospel. So, and in defining our second term, essentials. Essentials are that which is absolutely necessary, or are absolutely necessary, um, or the fundamentals of, or characteristics of a thing. That which is absolutely necessary. I know that uh, March 2020, we heard an awful lot about essential. Essential jobs, essential trades, essential employees, people <coughs> excuse me, that uh, people that had to keep working for society to continue to function. These were doctors and nurses and uh, you know, food service workers, people that worked at grocery stores, uh, trades that the uh, that the society really depended on. Even where I work as a fabricator, we were declared essential because of our um, industrial services side builds what they call essential infrastructure. We uh, build things for food plants and you know things like that, paper mills and stuff that keep the world going around. So it was essential, meaning they couldn't close these things down because they were needful that were absolutely necessary for a society to continue to function. That's how they define an essential job. That's how the government decided what essential was, what jobs, what trades were absolutely essential to the um, uh, to the operation of society. So essential essentials are things which must must be in place in order for something to exist or to continue to be what it is. When we talk about the nature of God, we talk about the Holy Trinity, we say that the persons of the Trinity share the one essence, the one divine essence. That term in the scriptures in the King James Version is translated as Godhead. And it is and that word Godhead means everything that it takes to make one God. The qualities that make one God. And this is referred to as his essence. So these things are essential to who God is. And if God is not these things that historic Christianity has defined him as, we don't have God. 
They are necessary to God's existence and for God to continue to be God. So if we just think about this from a really practical standpoint, um, I've uh, brought a couple of illustrations just to give you guys an even better grasp on what an essential is um, to fire. How many of you have ever built a fire? You've built a fire and you know that there are essentials to a fire. There are things, conditions that are necessary in order for a fire to be a fire. You've got to have what? Oxygen, fuel, and heat. If you don't have oxygen, you're not going to build a fire. It, you know, if, you, if you've got a candle burning and you take something that fits tightly around that candle and you smash it down on top of that candle, that flame will be extinguished because there's no oxygen to that flame to keep it burning. You've got to have heat. You can have fuel and oxygen all day. You can pour gasoline out on the ground. But without heat, without spark, without fire from an artificial source, a lighter or something like that, you are not going to have a fire. That fuel will sit there and evaporate with that oxygen if you don't have the heat. So those, and then if you don't have fuel, you might get a spark, you might cause something to burn for a little bit, but once that thing's burned up, it's gonna go out, right? So you've gotta have fuel. Most of the time today we use accelerants because we're impatient. But these things are necessary for a fire to exist. If you think about your vehicle, for your vehicle to run, if you drive a gasoline-powered vehicle, you must have you must have fuel and you must have spark. These things equal combustion and with the oxygen coming in through your uh, intake, it allows for the vehicle to run. So if you're not getting spark, if your spark plugs are bad, your vehicle's not gonna start. Well, they're, they're essentially the same things that fire need, okay? Yeah, right. Fuel, oxygen, oxygen. Yeah, or heat. And so these things are absolutely essential. If you don't have one of these things, your car's not going to run. Not going to get you very far at all. Or it's not going to run efficiently. So if you take any of these components away from the aforementioned fire or your engine, you're not going to have either of those two things. They are not going to function. So keeping these definitions in mind, bearing in mind that the essentials are necessary to something's function or existence, this is why I have titled today's sermon, Gospel Essentials. So what are these gospel essentials? I want to lay this out from the jump so that if you're taking notes, you have a chance to write these down and you might leave some space in between them because I'm going to expound each of them thoroughly because I don't want you to, I don't want to just assert that these things are essential to the gospel and leave it hanging. If I'm going to say that something is essential to the gospel, it must be borne out from the text of Scripture. So rather than assert these elements and beg the question, I want to prayerfully, 
and with your patience, bear these things out from the truth of the Word of God, both from this text and various supporting texts. So, um, it's going to be a lot faster if you're on a cell phone, but if you have a paper Bible, praise God, and um, I'll try to give you time to keep up with some of these texts that I'll be flipping to today. <coughs> Excuse me. Got water right there, Bob. Yeah, I need, I need some. Um, so these two essentials are as follows. And there are more, but these two appear here in our text explicitly. And I want to unpack them. These essentials are justification by faith alone. Um, as the reformers termed it, sola fide, right? Justification by faith alone. It was one of the five central tenets of the Protestant Reformation. And it is a gospel essential. And I plan to prove that today. And the second essential is union with Christ. Justification by faith alone and union with Christ. To say that these things are essential, and I intend to say so very dogmatically, that without these two truths, if these two truths are not present, the gospel is not present. Acts 2.42 states that the early church continued in the apostles' doctrine, and I aim to uh, prove the assertion today that justification by faith alone and union with Christ are uh, concepts that rise naturally from the apostles' doctrine. These are what the apostles taught in Scripture. It was charged by the post-Reformation Roman Catholic Church that these were novel doctrines. They even called justification by faith heresy and we and they charged the reformers with uh, novelty with this heresy and the reformers said no this is the apostles doctrine this is what scripture teaches and these things are absolutely essential to the continuance of the gospel in the church of Christ it is part and parcel of the reason that uh, the Protestant Reformation was started and why it continued and why it branched out in its movement without going too uh, to its own movement, excuse me. But without going into too much detail, I just I don't want us to get a cartoonish picture of the Protestant Reformation. It wasn't just one guy that got mad uh, that the Roman Catholic Church was charging uh, was selling indulgences and uh, you know he started this movement and he was just this lone rebel. There were people who were gathered around him, who rallied around with him, who, who agreed with him and he wasn't introducing anything new. These are the things that Christians had believed from the beginning of time but over time these elements had been lost through the, to the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. And so justification and union with Christ are not new doctrines. They are apostolic. And that is what I want to prove here today by the words of the Apostle Paul, P. 
Peter, James, John, all these apostles taught these things. So with that, let's return to our text. Starting in verse 15. We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. Even these Jews, who Paul said in his other epistles, Romans 3, were entrusted from the beginning with the very oracles of God. That is Romans 3, 1 and 2. <coughs> know that a man is not justified by the works that the law prescribed. Excuse me, I apparently got a raspy throat today. Um, but, so man is not justified by works. And as Protestants, as Baptists, we get that. That is ingrained to the very fiber of our theology that nothing that we do can cause us or make us able to stand in the presence of God. We must come by faith alone in Christ alone, right? right? So we have a pretty good grasp on that. But, and Paul, that's the gospel that he preached to the Galatians. But no sooner did Paul leave the region of Galatia, and here come these false teachers, here come these Judaizers, and they bring in this false heresy that a Christian must continue under the bondage of the law under these elemental things of the law in order to be justified before Christ. So we say that justification by faith alone is necessary because the Apostle Paul spent a whole book talking about justification by faith alone, right? That's what Galatians is about. It's one of the key themes of the epistle to the Galatians. And he's explicitly stating it right here. It says, Knowing that a man, verse 16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even when we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Jesus Christ, not by works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. This is laying out our first essential. The word alone is not present in this text. It does not say, knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but of faith of Jesus Christ. It does not say faith alone in Christ alone. We get that. The Protestants never claim that it did. And to simply bring up, well, I don't see the word alone in there, is to commit the fallacy of equivocation. It does not need, the word alone does not need to appear in that text to prove it from this text. Right, well, it's implied. Yeah, it's implied. It, we can, our confession states that in the reading of scripture, we derive our doctrine that is either ne uh, expressly set down in scripture, which means that it's verbatim in scripture, or necessarily contained. And that word necessary is very close to 
essential, that, that word that I've chosen today, that are necessarily contained. So we believe that to rightly understand Galatians, we must hold the truth of sola fide. We must hold that man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law. So it's plain, as Kevin was saying, it's, imply, it's plainly implied in the text that if not by works and by faith, then it is by faith apart from works or faith alone. Verse 16a, <coughs> the very first part of verse 16 says man is not justified by the works of the law. And here mainly, I believe what is in view is circumcision. Because if you keep reading through Galatians, that was the primary element that the Judaizers sought to reintroduce into the Christian church was the Jewish rite of circumcision. This uh, ritual cleansing, this ritual, it was a purification ritual, right? And we have things in the Christian church that symbolize that. First of all, what did uh, circumcision point to? It pointed to the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision made without hands, I believe that's in Colossians 3. It talks about uh, the circumcision of the heart, the circumcision made without hands. That is regeneration. That is the new birth. That is Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. God removing from man a heart of stone and giving for it a heart of flesh. That is what circumcision pointed to. So now when the reality of God's true covenant made with his true people has come through Jesus Christ, these old and elementary, and Paul calls them in chapter 3, beggarly elements of the law have passed away because they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We no longer need the elements that pictured this new and spiritual reality which is regeneration. So Paul is saying here that, look, circumcision was pointing to Christ. He called them in chapter 3, he called them fools for going back to these things. Why are they foolish for going back to these things? Because they failed to see what was pictured by these things. And Paul had just spent all this time traveling through the various churches in the region of Galatia and preaching to them the gospel and expounding to them the meanings, the spiritual meanings behind these Old Testament texts, these Old Testament rituals. Because we know that Paul, when he traveled to churches to preach, he was not walking around with a New Testament under his arm. He was, Paul did not preach from the book of Galatians, right? He wrote the Galatians. What he taught from was the Greek Septuagint, the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the books of wisdom, the Psalms. That was the Bible of the early church. So Paul had taught the Galatians all of these things from the Old Testament. So they should have known what circumcision pointed to. And they apparently forgot. 
So they put themselves back under the law because the Judaizers said to do so. And for this reason, Paul calls them fools. And we'll talk about that in the next chapter. But, so if we are not justified by the works of the law, by no, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, how shall we be justified? By, faith. by the faith of Christ Jesus. And that is surely to say, faith in Christ Jesus. This faith is not a faith that Jesus possessed, but the faith of which he is the author and the finisher. Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus is the author and finish, finisher of our faith. We look to the author and the finisher of our faith as we patiently run and endure the race set before us. Faith in Christ is how we get justified. It is the instrumental means of our justification. Instrumental means it is, it is by faith that we receive the justification, the righteousness of Christ. It is not... It is not that our faith, which is primarily uh, what they would call fiducia, it is a trust, a faith that trusts in Christ. Faith, as the reformers said it, was the hand that reaches out, the empty hand that reaches out and grasps hold of Christ. It is not something we do. It is very much a passive thing. There are active elements to this trust. <coughs> but the justifying element of this faith is the person that this faith is in. Christ is who justifies us. Christ, Christ's work is what justifies us. And it is trusting in him that justifies us. Not what we do with it, but him who our trust is in. So when we say justification by faith alone, it's not that you have to have a certain measure of faith to be justified. It's not something to be attained, but it's something to rest in and to receive. Faith is the way that we receive Jesus. Amen. The imputation of his righteousness to underserving sinners. It is imputed to us. They called Christ's crucifixion, the great exchange. He, he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was made a curse for us. That's what Galatians 3 says. It says he was made a curse for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This justification Martin Luther said with extra notes outside of oneself trusting in the righteousness of another I want you to turn with me if you have your Bible to Romans chapter 5 and once you turn there keep your place there because we will be coming back to Romans 5 it is uh, a very crucial 
part in understanding what Paul was unpacking to these Galatians. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Therefore being justified. Justified how? Justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience experience. And experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. By the Holy Ghost. Which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength. In due time Christ died the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man one will die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than now being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Do you get that picture? That it says justified by faith in Christ. And then down here, in verse 9 it says we are justified by his blood we receive the merits of his blood through faith our faith is not an active element that justifies us it is that which by we receive his righteousness not only so but we join God through Jesus Christ whom we have now received the atonement who made the atonement Christ and we receive that by faith. Amen. Romans 4.3. And you don't have to turn to all these places if you don't want to. Um, but write, you, know, you can write them down if you're taking notes. <coughs> Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Some translations actually say it was imputed to him for righteousness. This is that that in Genesis uh, 15, before Isaac, before he took Isaac to the altar, his faith was counted to him. Before he ever acted out on his faith, God looked at him, and he made his covenant with him. And he said, I've made my covenant with you and with your children. Before he even had any children, Walk ye before me and be ye blameless. This was God's covenant. So by the works of the law, this is talking about justification by faith alone. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And I don't think that though circumcision is in view here, I don't think that it's all that is in view. Amen. Not just the works under the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, but any attempt 
and human merit in justification. I, I thought this was great. I've been using Martin Luther's commentary a lot on Galatians. It's been really good. And when you read Martin Luther's commentary, you get a little sense of the anger that the Apostle Paul had toward these Judaizers that were destroying the faith that he had come in to build within their ranks. Luther, on this, on this passage, he takes this meaning as well. He said, this word, the work of the law, reacheth far and comprehendeth much. This I say because of the secure and idle sophisters and monks which do obscure such words in Paul, yea, they obscure, obscure and corrupt his whole argument concerning justification. With their foolish and wicked glosses, which even they themselves do not understand. Take thou the work of the law, therefore generally, for that which is contrary to grace. Whatsoever is not grace is the law. Whether it be judicial, ceremonial, or the Ten Commandments, wherefore thou couldst do the work of the law according to this commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. Not to say that no man... Not to say here that no man ever did or could do so, yet thou shouldest not be justified before God, for a man is not justified by the works of the law, but hereof we will speak more largely hereafter. <coughs> the work The work of the law then, according to Paul, signifieth the work of the whole law, whether it be judicial, ceremonial, or moral. Now the work of the moral law do not justify, much less than circumcision justify, which is a work of the ceremonial law. It was a work of the ceremonial law. And what do we know as Christians about the ceremonial law? The ceremonial law is that which was done away with in Christ. His death fulfilled the ceremonial law. Before atonement was made by the blood and the bulls of goats, and they would take these things that the, the priest and the high priest would offer them in, on the day of atonement before God and would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. And all of this was fulfilled in Christ by his atonement, by his death. So this is to say that if we are not justified by the works of the law and we are justified, that we are justified entirely by faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting in Christ for your justification involves placing the whole of your trust upon Christ. So much so that there is no room to trust in any other thing. It is a good and righteous thing to be baptized, to be a member of the church, to read your Bible, to start your day, to end your day, and string prayer throughout your day. But these things do not justify you before God. They are not counted into your justification. They are not looked upon for your justification. You are not justified anymore by how much you read your Bible or pray. These are good things and these are things you should do, but they do not count toward your justification. Nothing counts for your justification. I say that not to discourage you from doing those things, but so that you know 
that if you are truly trusting in Christ for your justification, there is no room to trust in anything else. Yeah, justification is salvation. It is where God takes a sinner and he clothes him in the robe of his son and he therefore now looks at us and treats us in Christ. He has justified us and we receive that by faith. If for no other reason than this, I consider and I think that sufficiently we have demonstrated that justification by faith alone is essential to the gospel. And if this truth is lost and gone by the wayside, then the gospel in its pure form, which was established formerly, vanishes with it. It's like the fuel in the fire. If we lose this element of the gospel, the gospel is extinguished in the church. And if the gospel no longer exists in the church, the church ceases to be a true church of Jesus Christ. The loss of this truth is, results in the loss of the gospel of God that the church has given her life for. <coughs> for this reason, just a, it, um, for this reason, when the post-Reformation Roman Catholic Church declared an anathema on anyone teaching justification by faith alone in the sixth session of the, of the Council of Trent, the gospel in its purest form ceased to exist within the Roman Catholic Church. And that's a lamentable truth. It's not something that I'm proud to get up here and proclaim. But it is devastating because we have many brothers and sisters inside trapped in a sacramental system to which there is no end. The life of the devout Catholic ends in purgatory, not standing before God in the righteous robe of Christ. Now, that is not to say that if any person is in the Catholic Church and they believe these things, that they cannot be justified. They can if they trust in Christ. But this is the spiritual abuse that these people are subjected to. They are told that, you know, they will need to go to purgatory and be purged further of all of their sins before they can enter into heaven in the presence of Christ. They are not taught about the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us by which we are counted righteous before the Father. And it's a lamentable truth. And I pray that if any Roman Catholic is watching, Brother, don't be offended by what I'm saying. I'm just trying to help. The gospel that is to be the center of the life of the church has been extinguished as a fire without fuel since officially, for, formally, since the 16th century at the Council of Trent. And it is a lamentable before we move on too quickly from this point, I think it's important to show you in the Old Testament, this is how justification has always worked. Justification by faith alone has always been 
essential to God's dealing with his covenant people. Take a look at me, or take a look with me at Psalm 143. The 143rd Psalm. Sorry. Verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in, that, in thy sight shall no man living be justified. <coughs> David understands, and in his hour of need, he flees to the throne of God for righteousness. 143. He flees to the throne of God for righteousness and says, For in thy sight no man shall be justified. That is to say exactly what Paul is saying here to the Galatians. By the works of the law shall no flesh, that is man, no living human, no person will be justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Christ. Verse 17 of Galatians chapter 2. I told you there was going to be a lot of flipping, and I apologize for that. Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners... Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? Paul answers this in a way that he is fond of answering. It is a very strong negation. God forbid. If you have an ESV, I believe it says by no means. It is a very strong negation. And that's why I like the King James, the God. Huh? Certainly not. Certainly not. Uh, by no means it's a but I like God forbid because what he is saying is God forbid don't even think it Christ is not the minister of sin the Judaizers considered both Paul and Peter sinners as the Gentiles hearkening back to verse 15 most likely because they didn't observe the customary dietary laws that the people of uh, Israel were under, under the Old Covenant. Also in view here, could be the same charge leveled against Protestants in the 16th century. That we promoted the doctrine of sola fide, and they would say that it is an accelerant. The Catholic Church said that it is an accelerant for licentious living and a breeding ground for immorality. How do we answer that charge? quickly so that we can get on to our next point. How do, how do we answer that charge? That if we are justified by grace through faith, God forbid that we go on sinning, right? right, right. Romans 6, 1 through 3. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, Amen. looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, good proof text for the deity of Christ, by the way, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify us unto himself, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Not only are we fully atoned for by his blood, but his blood, the application of his grace to us through his blood, does something to us. It teaches us to deny ungodliness. And it purifies us. And makes us a peculiar people who are zealous for good works. So to trust in Christ is not lawless. Christ is not the minister of sin, but the mediator, the minister of the covenant of grace. Grace is antithetical to sin. Grace, sin destroys grace, and grace destroys sin. Just as a little promotion, Wednesday evening I'll be dealing heavily with the distinctions that the reformers made between law and grace. So if you're unclear on this distinction made in scripture, we can either talk about it over lunch today, or you can join us Wednesday night, and we'll discuss this law and gospel distinction. To put this in modern phraseology, oh, excuse me, I'm skipping ahead of myself. Verse 18, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. To put this in modern phraseology, Paul is saying, why would I spend the time to undo everything that I have done just to destroy it and make vanity in my proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God? That would make me a transgressor, a traitor. One might be inclined to think that the gospel of grace would be the transgression. <coughs> But that it would be the setting aside of the law of God. But I like the way that the team that worked on the Reformation Study Bible deals with this passage in their notes. I like the way they phrase this. The note on verse 18 of the Reformation Study Bible says, The lawbreaker is not one who turns from the law to Christ for justification, but the one who turns back again from Christ to the law for justification. Turning away from grace is lawlessness. To a point, the entirety of Paul's message to the Galatian church is that there's nothing to go back to. There's nothing there. Don't put yourself under this bondage because there is nothing there. Turning back to the law for justification is lawless. 
So when Christ says to those people, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you workers of iniquity, what he is saying is not, woe to you who uh, sinned and needed my grace the way sinners do, but he is saying, woe to you who did not trust in me, who thought you could go back to establish your own righteousness. We don't have our own right, righteousness. We must have the righteousness of Christ. Amen. This will serve, and I, and I apologize for taking so long. I will try to speed up with the second point. Because it's, it's dealing with two verses instead of the previous. So this serves as a pivot point between justification by faith and our second point, which is union with Christ. Verse 19, for through the law, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. And he is going to tell us here in verse 20, how does one die unto the law? What does it mean to be dead to the law? Does it mean that the law is bad? Yeah, God forbid. Join us Wednesday night for that. <laughs> Verse 20. For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. We sang that song this morning. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. I love that part in there. It says, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is holy bound to his. This, that is the truth of justification by faith alone. So it could not have been anything but the providence of God that that song was chosen for this morning. It is expounding on that truth. My life is wholly bound to him, his. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live to be crucified with Christ. Doesn't mean that we are dead. We live, yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Amen. And the life that I now live in the flesh, we still really live this life. This Christian life is really ours to live. So we better be serious about living it, right? It's really ours to live. But the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. Gave his blood, gave himself for his church laid down his life for his bride that we might become righteous in him. In order to die to the law, one must be crucified with Christ, thus united to Christ in his death. The, the, the truth of this matter, and let me lay this out real quickly, we have the covenant the reformers, the reformed, have always seen covenants this way. We have seen the covenant of work, or three covenants. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. And every human being is under one of those two covenants. Either covenant of works or the covenant of grace. The only way to be under the covenant of grace is to be united to its testator, is to be united to Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. For if you are not, 
you are still under the covenant of works. And you must earn your own righteousness. If you will be righteous before God, you will be in Christ Jesus. Or you will earn it yourself. To make a long story really, really short, you can't. There is no hope. So if you are going to be, you know, if you are going to be a partaker of grace, you must be united to Christ. Princeton theologian and Presbyterian minister John Murray, of this doctrine of union with Christ, said that it is the center of truth to the whole doctrine of salvation. Union with Christ is the central truth. So how can we say that it's essential and central? I'm going to go pretty rapid fire here with some scripture for a minute. So you don't have to turn to all these. But if you want, write them down. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Nearly a hundred times in the New Testament. If my research serves me correctly, it's 96. This concept of union with Christ crops up explicitly. Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.17, <coughs> join unto the Lord. Galatians 3.27, baptized into Christ. Romans 6.4. Colossians 2.12, buried with him in baptism, with him in baptism. Romans 8.1, we've been studying Romans 8. Why is there no condemnation for us now? Because we are in Christ. We are united to Christ by faith. Amen. Colossians 3.1, raised with Christ. Ephesians 2.5, quickened, made alive together with Christ. Verse 6, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Verse 7, God shows his richness of grace in his kindness to us through Christ. Verse 10, created in Christ. Friends, this truth is absolutely essential for the gospel. And if you are united to Christ by faith, it should give you great hope for the future because you are united to Christ and if you have died with him if you have been crucified with Christ Romans 8 1 says for you there is therefore now no condemnation there is no law there is no covenant of works there to condemn you because you have been crucified with Christ is that enough references to establish this as a pattern to establish this as essential? Yes. To establish my thesis that union with Christ is imperative to the gospel? If you would like, I have about 85 more places I could go to. But I think I'll spare you that so that we can get to eat lunch before 7 o'clock this evening. <laughs> I do wish to take you to one more passage. And we've already been here. If you'll remember, I told you to keep your markers in Romans chapter 5. Turn with me to Romans 
chapter 5. This whole doctrine of union with Christ is based upon the a priori assumption that, that humans by their birth are united to Adam. Adam was the father of the human race. We are his offspring in the flesh, right? He was the first man who all of humanity came from. And so Romans 5 sees two humanities. It sees humanity born into this world in Adam and humanity united to Christ by faith. Romans 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore is by one man Sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, Adam reigned, or death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. That's speaking of Christ. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more by the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded to many. And not as if it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses under justification. For if by one, man, one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in the life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abound, grace did much more abound. That is, sin hath reigned unto death, even so that grace might reign through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. <coughs> These are gospel essentials. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. Justification is rooted firmly in our union with Christ. We receive his robe of perfect righteousness by faith. By faith, God the Father places upon us the righteousness of his Son. And Christ ushers us into the presence of the Father and, our fa and hath presented us to him in union with himself, in God's sight, just as holy and blameless as he is, by grace alone through faith this is the truth of the gospel. This is the point of Romans 5. This is the point of Galatians 2. We are justified by faith. And by faith, we are united to Christ. And by that union with Christ, 
we are justified forevermore, eternally, in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 says there is nothing that can separate us. Ephesians 2.8.9. Ephesians 2.8.9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for thy truth. For it is nourishment for our souls. It is living water that we receive to quench our thirst. Lord, the world has parched us, has dried us out. We must need come to you weekly for this refreshment, daily for this refreshment. Lord, we must seek you where you may be found. By your word, you may be found. And you offer unto us freely of the waters of life that we may come and drink. Father, I pray that all today have tasted of this living water, have received nourishment for their hungry soul. Father, I pray that you would be glorified. Let me be forgotten and your gospel remembered. Father, I ask that you bless this food as we break bread together in fellowship. And bless this day and sanctify it unto thyself for thy worship and for our benefit. We love you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.